Ray, Ray Lucchese here with Greg Schultz. Welcome to the next episode of the Greybeards of Storage Podcast, a show where we get Greybeard Storage bloggers to talk with system vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. This Greybeard on Storage episode was recorded on July 18, 2019. We have with us here today an old friend, co-host emeritus Howard Marks, technologist extraordinaire and plenipotentiary of Vast Data Inc. So Howard, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing these days and about your new company? Sure. Well, I uh, decided to take a trip on the vendor side and see what it was like telling this, a particular story instead of helping everybody else tell their stories. And I had a conversation with the folks at Vast, and it looked like a really interesting story. Uh, basically, our founders who designed a couple of the first generation of all flash arrays, you know, extreme IO and Caminario looked at the all flash market and realized while it was possible to make systems faster than that generation of all flash arrays, the number of customers who were saying, you know, <clears throat> my extreme IO isn't fast enough. I need something faster was really small. What people were saying was, I love my all-flash array. I wish I could afford it for more of my applications. And so VAST is about bringing all-flash to the masses. And because we are VAST, that is the masses of data, not the masses of people, we build a large-scale, scale-out, file and object storage system. And when I say large scale, our entry point is on the order of 500 terabytes of data before data reduction. So, you know, we're look we're selling into the large enterprise, the national labs, the machine learning, the data intensive applications and people with lots of data. So, are you, are you focused primarily on the HPC marketplace then? The goal is, and the, the design concept is to be universal storage. Uh, traditionally, we've divided storage up into tiers matching the cost of storing any, any piece of data to the media we put it on. And the problem with that is as we discover new value, we have data stuck on slow systems that don't let us extract that value. So, you know, I, in many, many cases, there's things like, well, yes, the archive is in uh, an <clears throat> object store, but the object store isn't fast enough for the full text indexer to run against. So when I have to do a query, I have to bring promote data up a tier, run a query, and then throw it away. Um, we've designed a system with no tiers. We have one pool of all flash media. And we can, through various methods that we'll get to later, uh, bring the cost of that all flash down to where we can compete with 7,200 RPM spinning disk-based systems for many applications. All right. So let me try to unpack all this. File and object store, but no block. Right. File and object, but no block. Today, and NFS and SMB three dot whatever today today NFS three and S three SMB and NFS four 
soon. And uh, S3 compatible uh, compatibility, is that something that you can verify these days? I have no idea. Um, you know, there's various versions of that. <laughs> S3 is a de facto standard. Um, we, we support the functions that people commonly use. Um, and we support a couple of additional functions for specific uses. Um, there, there's an uncommon S3 function called fanout to say, here's an object, create me 400 copies of that object. And we have some customers who find that to be attractive. So we support that as well as the usual stuff. But, but when you start looking at the S3 functions that applications like backup applications and archive applications and media digital asset management systems use, you know, that's a common subset and we support that common subset. When we were talking at uh, some storage field day in my past life here, um, Bass made a date. The, the, I don't know if it was the CTO or the CEO made the comment that uh, we're going to kill off disk. It yeah. was very provocative. <laughs> I said he's crazy. But, you know, I, the, um, disk has been around for, gosh, I'm thinking 78 years now. And it's, it hasn't gone away. It, it might be, you know, moving down scale or down the, the stack to, or down the tiers. But so, yeah. So tell me about what, what why is that? I mean, the, path, the path for spinning disks is going to become like the path for tape. It, it becomes the right solution for narrower and narrower use cases. Ah, gosh, but you're still sending, selling millions and millions of disk drives. Yes, but we're, we're, just, we're just reaching the point where that diminishment is starting for anything but, pri but primary storage. You know, today, the number of people using all flash systems for things like backup and archives is small. Because all flash, because all flash systems have traditionally been too expensive for that, and curiously, part of why they've been too expensive is because they've been too small. If if you think about flashware and write endurance as an issue, if you have five small systems each supporting a rack of servers running VMs, then you have to have each system be able to deal with the busiest of that fifth of your data. If you put them all on one system, you get to amortize the wear across a much bigger pool of flash. The other thing you mentioned in the, in the introductory to spiel was this no tearing concept. Right. You might want to tell me how that's going to work in, a, in an environment where you're doing primary storage, S3. Now it's time to introduce the architecture. So we have, we sell two pieces of hardware. You know, all of our IP is in the software, um, but we sell appliances because it's, people want to buy appliances and support is easier and all the other good reasons. Um, so we sell two kinds of appliances. The main one is the vast enclosure. It's a fault tolerant HA NVMe over fabrics JBOF holds 56 U.2 SSDs. 12 of those SSDs are Optane SSDs. The other, the other 44 are QLC SSDs. And we use QLC as a shortcut for 
QL SSDs that use QLC, but we also mean SSDs that don't have a DRAM buffer and the and the super cap to protect the DRAM buffer. They're very low cost SSDs. But wait, no. Optane? You're not using Optane as a tier of storage? You're just using Optane as a cache? We're not even using Optane as a cache. We're using Optane as a write buffer. Well, that's that's a cache. That's a, write buffer is a cache. It is, but it's a limited case. It, you know, we what we don't do is what we don't do is ever promote data from the flash to the Optane. So, because reads from the QLC flash are fast enough, there's no reason to say I'm going to when somebody reads this block of data, I'm going to promote it to the Optane. I'm just going to satisfy those reads from the flash. Um, so as the customers see it, when we talk about usable capacity, it's all the flash. The Optane doesn't count at all. Um, the Optane's where we store all the metadata because the other, the other appliance is a four servers in two U appliance that we OEM from Intel, where all the software and intelligence runs. And when we run, when we run our software on the, on those servers and we turn them into what we call vast servers, those servers satisfy N NFS and S3 requests. They manage the data on the SSDs in the enclosure. They manage the metadata, but they're stateless. All the state is stored in the Optane in the enclosures in a cluster. So there's no east-west crosstalk between the vast servers. And the system will run just fine with one vast server because one vast server has access to all the SSDs and therefore all the data and all the metadata. Now, you know, 600 terabytes of data behind one pair of x86 processors might bog down, but there's no functions that we're going to lose. So it's a scale out architecture. We, we can have an arbitrary number of enclosures and an arbitrary number of servers. And because most of the performance comes from the servers, we can scale performance and capacity independently. Um, you mentioned the QLC doesn't have SCAP, right. DRAM. Which, which, which means that we save a lot of money. We're, we're, yeah, but yeah, but what about the data? The data, data integrity. You're you're writing to to a QLC device, and all of a sudden, it you know the system dies. Okay, so there's there's two questions here. The first is the data integrity question, and the second is the endurance question. So in term so in so in terms of the data integrity question, the metadata is all transactional, and incoming data to the system gets written to multiple Optane SSDs. Later, it gets destaged from the Optane SSDs to the QLC SSDs. And in that process, we reduce it using data reduction technology that we guarantee is better than anybody else's data reduction technology. We erasure code it using very wide stripes with very high levels of protection. And then we destage that data to the QLC SSDs. And we destage that data to the QLC SSDs in megabyte writes. Once we've written a megabyte to that SSD, we send it the NVMe commit command 
and the data is all written to flash and we don't start accessing the copy of the data we just put in the QLC till after the SSD acknowledges the commit, then we delete the copy that's in the Optane. So in terms of if power fails in the middle of this operation, another vast server is going to look at the metadata, see there's a partial transaction, roll it back and destage that data again. Now, so, so the where leveling and stuff like that is because you're doing megabyte level writes. That's part of it. So if you if if you think about yeah, so if you so let, let's stop at our erasure coding for a second. So we don't let we don't let you choose an erasure code method. We stripe as wide as we can, depending on how many enclosures you have. So in a typical system, we stripe 150 data strips and four parity strips. 150 and four data and parity. Okay. So what's that? A five failure, right? Five failure. Five. It supports. Okay. It supports four failing devices. Right. We can fail four devices before data loss. And. <clears throat> That's a very you know, much higher level of resiliency than a typical system. Most are plus one or plus two. Um, but the problem... It's 150 would imply multiple uh, enclosures, right? Three or four enclosures. Yeah, 100, 100 and... Right. If we have one enclosure, it's 36 plus four. So there's 44 SSDs and we need room to rebuild. Um. With read Solomon erasure codes, if we striped 150 plus four and an SSD failed, we'd have to read data from 149 SSDs to reconstruct the failed data. A little rebuild issue. <laughs> okay. But you're not using read Solomon? Instead of read Solomon, we use a new class of erasure codes called locally decodable codes. And by using all four parity strips in every reconstruction and having the parity strips not be calculated from the same set of data strips, but by calculating over broader regions, the parity strips tell us the net result of the data from three quarters of the strips. So we only have to read a quarter of the strips. So if you think about it as parity, as opposed to the more complicated math and the way XOR works, you go, well, parity strips one and two tell me that if I XOR together the first 50 strips, it comes out to a one. So I don't have to read. God, we need the math gal here. <laughs> I have talked to Rachel about it. Um, and, and, and so because we know what the total of the first 50 strips is, I don't need to read the first 50 strips. And that means... So you're telling me you can read the four parity stripes, let's call them, and you already know what three-fourths of the, the data drives will look like at that point? Well, I know what the parity, what the result of the parity calculation of those three-quarters would be, and therefore I don't need to read it. So you only have to read the one-fourth of... Exactly. Okay, I got you. I got you. 
This is interesting. I like these non these de- decodable local locally decodable codes. Yeah, it make it makes doing really wide stripes um, reasonable. We're we're still we're still reading on the order of forty. You're still you're still reading. You know, with 150 devices, you're still reading. You know, lots. Um, but that's you know a lot less than 150, and it means that at 150 plus four, we're down in the three percent overhead range, not the 25 or 30 percent overhead range most systems are. So we've got very high resiliency, very low overhead. You mentioned the 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 uh, the the guaranteed better data reduction capability that anybody else in the universe. Is that what I heard? You guys explain that, Howard. Okay, so for, so first I'll explain the guarantee, and then I'll explain how we get there. The guarantee is really simple. If you have unencrypted data, what about media? What, what about non-compressible? What about you know? You're just saying unencrypted, okay? All we're right, we're guaranteeing better. We're not guaranteeing a specific amount. And so if you have media data that on some other system reduces half of one percent, and on our system it reduces two and a half percent, that's better. So so we're not you know, it it may not be it it may not be impressive. But it is two times better. <laughs> uh, and so the guarantee simply says if you have a set of data that's not encrypted and you put it on some other guy's system and it takes X gigabytes of space and you put it on our system and it takes Y gigabytes of space and Y is greater than X, then we will expand your system so that you have enough space. How we do that it, it works like this. So like a deduplication system, we break data up into chunks. And we break data up into chunks using a variable block size method, the one covered in the Rocksoft patent. So the boundaries of the chunks are determined by the data, not by some size. And we make chunks between 8 and 16K. And then, like a deduplication system, we hash the chunks. But the difference is we don't use SHA-1. SHA-1 is designed to be collision-resistant, and and therefore, SHA-1 is designed to have a very large change in the hash for a small change in the data. We use a weaker hash function. It's not 160 bits. It's like 56 bits. So you can tell closeness of the data? Right. Similarity. Similarity? Who deals with similarity? This is data. You can't similarity under your slot. Well, sure it does. So we hash the chunk and we get a similarity hash. And what the similarity hash means to us is a suggestion as to what compression dictionary will work best for this data. Oh, you mean like text, office, media, something like that? These are the different Huff, Puff, Puffman, what are the Huffman code? Well, Huff, not no, more the, the LZ part than the Huffman part. 
right? But if you if you do standard compression, you go, oh look, there's seven zeros in a row. Let me replace that seven zeros with a symbol. And then and then you have to build a dictionary that says, I saw this data and I replaced it with that symbol. If two chunks are similar, then they have a lot of the same rep small repeating patterns in them that will generate the same symbols. And therefore they'll compress with the same dictionary. But we don't have to store the dictionary twice. So we take the first chunk that generates a given similarity hash and we store it as a reference block. In, in metadata, I might add. Yeah. When a second chunk generates the same hash, we compress the two chunks together using Z standard. And that lets us get a delta chunk that's the differences between the reference chunk and our new chunk. And we just store that delta. And there's some code in there that goes, oh, the delta is zero bytes. It is a duplicate. Let me update the counters. All right. So I've got, I've got data that let's call it text data. There's a standard, you've, you've created a standard text compression dictionary when you first encountered the first text data block or chunk. It's much more specific. It's much more specific than text, but yes. Okay. Let's say raise text data. <laughs> okay. Yeah. With yeah. all my nuances of spelling and all that other stuff. And well, you, you save, you saved a file. Yes. And then you did a save as, cause you want to create a new version. And, and you edit a, and you, and, and you spell check the new version and you save it again. So now we have chunks of data that are that that are very similar because the only difference is in the reference chunk plenipotentiary was misspelled and in the <laughs> yeah, it was I might add <laughs> and 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 in the new chunk plenipotentiary spelled properly so you know it's probably a 16k chunk with 10 bytes different and so our delta block that gets generated from that is going to be 150 bytes or something like that because there's many. So your delta block has to point to the original block. Right. The original block probably needs to point to the delta block because you don't ever actually want to get rid of the original block because it's you know you've got dependencies on a delta block. Right. Now. So the so the ref so we have to keep a counter on the reference block that says how many delta blocks there are that point to it. Just, just like in deduplication. Yes, only it's not a duplicate. And when we rehydrate data, we need to read the delta block and the reference block and rehydrate the data from the combination. Um, so we, for a given chunk, if the two, if the original chunk, the reference block, and the new chunk are exactly the same. It acts like it. It acts like deduplication, and and we just store a pointer. If they're similar, we store less than the whole second chunk, and it's all compressed with Z standard, which is one of the leading new compression schemes that does both LZ style compression and Huffman style compression. So we compress as well as anybody compresses plus or minus 2% because we use one of the later, better compression schemes. We deduplicate 
or effectively deduplicate just like everybody else, because if two chunks end up being the same, we just store a pointer. And then for the chunks that the other guys would store simply compressed and maybe store 8K for a 16K chunk, we store hundreds of bytes instead of 8K. Okay, I understand. Uh, I like what you're doing. I think it's very neat. But the metadata is going to kill you. Yeah, and you have to know how many bytes in the 100 bytes in this dedupe block that's decoded, another 417 in this one, 304 in that, and five in the last one. And that's and that's the next key to the whole system is the metadata is all in the Optane. So we don't have RAM-based constraints on how big we build the metadata or what data metadata is in RAM and what metadata is out on something that's much slower than RAM. And you can join this compression and all that stuff in, in DRAM on the servers or on the Optane or? A combination. Uh, the work, you know, the, the calculations happen in DRAM and the stripe gets assembled in Optane and then destaged. And the Optane is the key to this reduction as well, because the whole reference chunk compressed thing takes a little bit more time than conventional reduction. But since, since we act once the data is in the Optane and we have terabytes of Optane, not gigabytes of DRAM, the delay is post-act, so user applications never see it. And as long as we can destage data to the flash as fast as data is being written in, it doesn't matter how many milliseconds or microseconds it takes for any given block to get all the way down to the QLC. And, and you mentioned the Octane writes are replicated across multiple Octanes. So if I'm writing a block, let's say, it's going to be fast written into Optane first, but you've got multiple versions of those? Right. So there's, in, in each enclosure, there's a dozen Optane SSDs. A vast server gets an NFS request to write. It writes that data to multiple Optanes if there are multiple enclosures across multiple enclosures. Then it acts. And then later, a process on another vast server starts, starts the de stage. Yeah, and, and compression and decoding and, and all the other stuff. Right. And since there's a pool of vast servers, it all happens in parallel. And the more servers you have, the faster it happens. Yeah, but I mean, it, you know, you actually have to write these things to real Optane at, at some point, you know. And so the, you, you mentioned the NVMe over fabric uh, to the enclosures. Is that is that RDMA or, or? It's it's RDMA. It's 100 gigabit per second, either Rocky V2 or InfiniBand, depending on customer requirements. And so the 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 other thing about the met there's a couple of things about the metadata that are special. The first is the metadata is all byte-oriented. It's not block-oriented. So, so a file extent doesn't say this logical block, and then you look someplace else and go, oh, that logical block is stored on this SSD. It, that pointer says this SSD, this LBA, this many bytes in, this long. And, and, and you're writing megabytes of data at a whack here, right? Well, not, 
Well, so we're writing megabytes of data at a whack because the SSDs we're using are very sensitive to write size. Right. So we're well. So if you so remember, there's no DRAM. Yeah, and no SCAP. And and the and the page size on QLC Flash is 64 to 128K. So if you if you are a log-based file system that was designed for spinning disks and you write 4K blocks to these SSDs, each, each 4K write takes 64K of flash and then the system has, and then it has to garbage collect. So these drives are rated at six petabytes written endurance for 4K writes and 25 petabytes written for 128K writes. But we write one meg. The other, the other big thing we do specifically for flash endurance is we segregate data based on its expected on its life expectancy. Based on a heat map, um, a life map. If you look, if you look at a standard storage system, data with small exceptions gets written to the media in the order it is received by the system. And so if I've got an Oracle database, that Oracle database is writing data to the database files, which is long lived. It's gonna stay on the system a long time. And data to the transaction logs, which is short lived. When we run the backup tonight, those logs are gonna get expunged. If we write data to the SSDs in the order it's received, that data is all interleaved together. Then we send the SSD, oh, and tonight we run the backup, we delete the log files, we send the SSDs a message that says, okay, all the log file data is now invalidated. You can use it in your internal log system. And now the SSD has to do garbage collection. And that increases the right amplification in the SSDs and the number of times a given piece of data has been moved around from one place in the flash to another place in the flash. We go, the log files are all in the log folder. We know the log folder is short-lived. So we're going to write a thousand one meg stripes of temporary data, the temp folder, the log folder, you know, we have a little bit of heuristics to figure out which kinds of files in your environment are typically short-lived. And we put all the short-lived data together. And then we put all the long-lived data together. And of course, we can do this because we've got plenty of Optane to accumulate these huge blocks of data. So when we do garbage collection in our log-based system, we tell the SSD, this gigabyte of data is now invalid. And then we send the trim, and in NVMe it's called deallocate, but we send the command to the SSD that says, okay, you can release all that data. And the SSD now has erase blocks, and an erase block in this kind of flash is tens of megabytes in size. But those erase blocks are completely empty, so it can just erase them. It doesn't have to do any internal garbage collection. The thing people forget about garbage collection is a given system collects garbage till it reaches I have enough free space. How much data you have to move to do that 
depends on whether on the mix of valid and invalid data that you start with. The transient or non-transient that are they're intermixed in those pages. By as. separating them, we have to garbage collect much less often because every stripe we garbage collect generates a lot of free space and therefore less wear. The whole system is designed to minimize wear on the flash, accommodating the geometry of the SSD so that we can not only eliminate how much rate in how much rate amplification we create ourselves by doing things like garbage collection, but how much rate amplification we create inside the SSD through managing the data. Okay, so, so back to the metadata. The metadata is retained and maintained on Optane only. It's never gotten gone down to the QLC. So the metadata structures are trees that are very wide, 512 nodes per layer. It should be 512 leaves per node. Um, and very shallow. It's a max seven steps through the metadata to find the end leaf that you're looking for. And the end leaf would be um, potentially a block, you know, a, a, a file extent, a file entry in a folder, something like that. Um, if you compare that to, you know, the, the prototypical Unix system with inodes, it could be 40 or 50 you know, walking your way down, walking your way down a folder, looking in inodes, looking in the next folder. There's like, it's a lot of lookups. So we minimize that number of lookups. When we run out of space in the Optane, the, the bottom leaves get forced down to QLC. So it goes from seven fast lookups in the Optane to six fast lookups and one slightly slower lookup. And that could go to two if necessary or something like that, based on the amount of capacity that's being. We, we, we can handle, you know, very, very large no numbers of objects without, without pushing the next layer into the flash. I think the challenge might be the S3 stuff because the number of objects could, could be extraordinary. Yes. And we're, no, we're designed to, to handle billions of objects. Um, and remember, it's all scale out. So every time you add an enclosure, you add more Optane. And, and the metadata in each, you know, there's a, the, a root of a tree in each enclosure and a function for the servers to calculate where to find those when they power up. So the expansion is relatively simple. There's not a lot of, you add, we added two enclosures and now we have to copy half the metadata over into it. You'd think you'd have to copy a lot of metadata over as you're expanding the, the stripes and all that stuff. Well, as, as data gets moved over, the metadata for that data has to get moved over, but there isn't, you know, there, there isn't a lot of proactive moving of things around. We generally frowned on proactively moving things around because it creates right amplification. You mentioned the servers are stateless, but the enclosures obviously are not. Right, all the states in the enclosure. And and it's, you know, each enclosure has two fabric modules and 200 gig Ethernet ports per fabric module, and then a PCIe switching fabric that connects the fabric modules to the SSDs. So there's really no computation in, the, in there other than networking. 
but the enclosure we're using now, you know, we, we don't build custom hardware. Um, the enclosure we're using now is an off the shelf product. It uses x86 servers as the fabric modules. All they do is create NVMe over fabrics connections between the ethernet and the SSDs. They know we don't, we don't do any storage management in the enclosure. The enclosure's dumb. So let's talk basic file system services, things like quota management, QoS, replication, global namespaces. So it's, it's one global namespace across the entire cluster. We don't, we don't have multiple volumes or that whole concept. It's one namespace. It can be subdivided for multi-tenancy, and we can even um, assign tenants pools of vast servers to do QoS by tenant and say, here, you're going to have this much performance because you have this many vast servers. Um, snapshots are coming any day now. Uh, replication coming later this year. Um, QoS right now is done via vast server pooling. And remember, we're a startup. We've been shipping for eight months. Cloning versus snapshotting, so I guess that's, uh, and your snapshots will, when they come, be read-only? So the, 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 the initial version of snapshots that ships any day now um, will be per file system or per system snapshots. The next version, which should ship this year, will be for per folder snapshots. Um, well, when you when you have a storage system that's an exabyte, you really want to take snapshots of subsets. <laughs> um, and so we will, in the fullness of time, be able to do things like support vSphere hosts and vVols and automatically generate per folder snapshots. Um, this this is all this is all distant roadmap with no 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 dates attached. Yeah, you mentioned uh, vSphere. So, uh, are you do you support an NFS data store for vSphere today, even though it's not vVols? We we do not currently support that use case. Um, that is something that will be changing relatively soon. Um, when you're a company at our stage, support means that there's a customer who needs support. And, and so, you know, it's, there's, there's a little bit of testing we have to do. And then there's just, you know, well, are we going to support it? Well, who are we going to support it on? And we're, we're still at that stage. And, and you mentioned that you support billions of objects. Does that include billions of files? Yes. So the the metadata constructs what we call the vast element store. It's not a file system. It's not an object store. It's an abstraction. And then the file system and the object store are presentations of that abstraction. So what that first of all, what that means is an S3 folder, excuse me, an S3 bucket is an NFS folder. So you can create files via NFS and then analyze them by an application that accesses its, the same data via S3. 
Um, it means that when we support SMB and NFS, that we store an abstract version of ACLs, not NTFS ACLs, not NFS4 ACLs, but one that we can make serve both sets of purposes. God, this has been great. Uh, there's plenty of other questions I have. Greg, do you have anything you want to ask? Yeah. Um, so is there any client-side software required? Or is there a special client-side driver? Nope. It's not a, it's not a parallel file system. It's a file and object system. So clients access the system via NFS. If they want higher performance, they can access the system via NFS over RDMA, which eliminates all the TCP issues related to a single client accessing a single share and lets you get eight gigabits per second, excuse me, eight gigabytes per second of access from a single NFS over RDMA client to a single file, uh, or they can use S3. But we do not build clients for user systems. Um, we do not build tiers. We have a no more tiers formula, just like the folks at Johnson's. And well, the no, no more tiers formula starts to become important, not so much internally, but because we're saying you can afford to put all the data you would put on your tier one and a half, tier two, tier three, and tier four storage systems on ours. And by having that large pool of data, first of all, it's one data reduction realm, not seven deduplication realms, because I've got data on seven systems that deduplicate independently. And then we get to amortize that, the where created by your hot application against. So we get to amortize the where from your hot applications against the data that's being used by your cold applications, and the average goes down. It's it it you know we call it the virtuous cycle. Sometimes it's the counterintuitive cycle. The more data you put on an all flash system, the more data you can afford to put on the all flash system. All right, listen, Howard. Do you have anything you'd like to say to our listening audience? Well. So if you're dealing with large quantities of data and data intensive applications like machine learning um, or oil and gas exploration or real-time analytics where your hot data and your cold data don't segregate as well as they used to, we're the solution. One system, one tier, one performance profile for all of those applications. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much, Howard, for being on our show again today. <laughs> wow. I've been in the habit for so long. It's always a pleasure to be a graybeard. Next time, we'll talk to another system storage technology person. Any question you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. And please review us on iTunes and Google Play as this will help get the word out. That's it for now. Bye, Greg. Bye, Ray. Bye, Howard. Bye, Ray. And that's it. Thanks, gents. Thanks, gents.